0: This is Democracy,
1: a podcast about the people of the United States, a podcast about citizenship,
0: about engaging with politics and the world around you, a podcast about educating yourself on today's important issues
2: and how to have a voice in what happens next. Welcome to our new episode of This is Democracy. Uh, In recent days and weeks and months, uh, the United States has experienced an appreciable rise in anti-Asian American violence uh, within our country, Uh, hatred expressed in many forms, and uh, direct violence against Asian Americans, most recently in the city of Atlanta, where uh, at least six Asian American uh, workers uh, were attacked uh, by a citizen uh, and killed. Uh, We are today going to examine the history of Asian Americans in American society, Uh, The role, the controversy, and in particular, the reasons for uh, hatred and exclusion that has surrounded the Asian American experience, in addition to the evidence of incredible Asian American participation, patriotism, and success uh, in American history. We're joined by, uh, I think, the person who's written some of the most important uh, books and articles on this topic, and someone who teaches uh, these issues uh, to so many students Uh, My colleague, uh, Madeline Hsu. Uh, Good morning, Madeline. Good morning. Madeline is a professor of history at the University of Texas at Austin. Uh, She served as the director of our Center for Asian American Studies from 2006 to 2014. Uh, Madeline was born in Columbia, Missouri, uh, but she grew up in Taiwan and Hong Kong, uh, while she also visited her grandparents at their store in Alzheimer, Arkansas. And as I mentioned, uh, Professor Xu is one of the most prolific and highly regarded uh, researchers and authors on the topic of Asian American history. Her first book uh, was titled A Dreaming of Gold, Dreaming of Home, wonderful title, Transnationalism and Migration Between the United States and South Asia in the late 19th and first half of the 20th century. Her more recent book, uh, The Good Immigrants, How the Yellow Peril Became the Model Minority, really a fantastic examination, not just of the Asian American experience, but of immigration in the United States in general, a book I highly recommend. I read it a number of years ago and have used it with many students uh, of Asian American history and immigration uh, in general. Uh, She also uh, wrote very recently Asian American History, a very short introduction to a very large topic, (laughs) and she is the co-editor of an anthology. A Nation of Immigrants Reconsidered U.S. Society in an Age of Restriction from 1924, the date of an infamous uh, Immigration Act that excluded Asian Americans as well as many others uh, through 1965. Before we turn to our discussion of the Asian American experience and exclusion uh, and controversy with uh, Madeline Shu, uh, we have, of course, our uh, scene-setting poem from Mr. Zachary Surrey. Zachary, what's the title of your poem today?
1: Like a Bullet. Well, let's hear it. What does he see as he stares at my eyes? You are about to tell him about the first time you saw my fair lady when the train jolts, and he leaps off, still glaring at you as the elevated train pulls away in long, leaping spurts. Could he push a grandmother to the ground just to see narrower eyes cry? You are left to unravel the ghostly black threads, to try and follow them like old photographs, backwards in time, up and around the overhead handlebars, and out the window of the train into the open air. Where am I that is so beautiful? It is Chicago, or Philadelphia, or maybe it's L.A. seen from a jet liner. But actually, you're on a Greyhound bus, staring out at a cornfield. What is that blinding burst of red behind the oak tree, you ask from your seat at the back of the bus? It is the flag on a farmhouse hidden behind the ancient oak. It reflects the sun, or is lit by a spotlight, or maybe, in truth, it is on fire. Where am I that is so familiar? You stand on a suburban Atlanta street in the early hours of a humid afternoon. You stand in the middle of the road and wait for a reminder of where exactly you are. Four, five, six, seven, eight. What was that? In a flash, it seems, you are back on the bus, and you can still see the flag on fire in front of the farmhouse, except now the tree isn't there. You can see the whole flag, and you can tell now that it's burning. And the bus is moving faster now, much faster, and all you can do is watch the fire go by like a bullet. Zachary, that's a very powerful poem. Uh, what is it really about? The poem is really about the ways in which uh, Asian American history uh, is is so complex and, and, and so emotional, and, and the ways in which it has been shoved under the rug for so long, uh, and how it is suddenly coming forth into the public discourse and really becoming a topic that that everyone is talking about and, and, and how it's becoming a a cornerstone of our national discussion in the past few days.
2: So it's it's something that's been there but been ignored for so long. Yeah. Uh, Madeline, I think this is this is the appropriate place to turn to you. Uh, when we think about the Asian American experience in the United States, when should we really begin? When does that story really begin and and, and how should we think about the origins of the story? So
0: I want to start by thanking Zachary for that really moving contemplation of um, our present moment and the ways in which our nation is really rife with all kinds of symbols and um, indicators of um, deeply rooted racial problems. Um, Asian American history, um, as Zachary explained, is, um, and the presence of Asian Americans, particularly for the last half century or so, people have not really been paying much attention because we're assumed to be and viewed as a, a model minority, highly accomplished, um, relatively well integrated. Um, and I think uh, many people embrace this as a way of showing that the United States can move past its uh, deeply problematic, deeply troublesome. Uh, racial history of inequality and exploitation and discrimination. The truth is, and um, this is why it's important to uh, pay attention to history, is that um, Asians have been racialized from even before they came to the United States. And so going as far back as the 1790 Nationality Act, which is the uh, first effort by Congress to set terms for what persons and what processes uh, uh, produce, uh, can transform immigrants into citizens. And so this law restricted uh, citizenship by naturalization. And this is intrinsic right, to the nation of immigrants, how people who arrive, who are born in other places come to the United States and are able to qualify uh, to participate in our democratic society that law restricted citizenship to, uh, and I quote here, uh, "free white persons." In practice, this meant white male property owners, which, uh, not coincidentally, sounds a lot like our the generation of our founding fathers. Um, the this law uh, then had the effect of turning all persons of color. Uh, into non-citizens, even those who had been present in the United States for generations, right? Of course, I'm referring to Native Americans, uh, to um, enslaved um, Black Americans, Uh, and then Asians uh, before they even arrived are institutionally non-citizens. They're eternal foreigners. This racial restriction on citizenship targeting Asians Remains on the books until 1952. So, for most of US history, um, Asian immigrants have been categorically, legally uh, considered to be foreigners, inassimilable, uh, you know, and in terms of their legal rights, in terms of their efforts to claim American lives, face this um, just intractable barrier. Now, immigration laws, uh, the United States undertakes to try to systematically restrict immigration um, after it sets aside uh, the issue of slavery and also reconstruction. This happens in 1875. The earliest uh, immigration restrictions targeted Chinese as a race. Um, The racial restriction on Asian immigration remains on the book. Asians remain tracked by their race Uh, until 1965. Again, this is for uh, the bulk of US immigration history. And so uh, this has broader implications because if you are a non-citizen, if you are seen as an alien, uh, and this is a legal status, you actually have, are very, very vulnerable. You're vulnerable to detention and deportation. It's in fact, uh, speaks of a significant level of violence. Uh, So um, as one example, uh, dating back to this earlier period, and here I'm citing the work of Beth Lou Williams, um, The Chinese Must Go, uh, the first Chinese uh, restriction laws were passed in the early 1880s. Americans in the West, uh, so uh, here particularly in Wyoming Territory, Rock Springs Massacre, found that despite passage of those laws, there were still Chinese around, that Chinese were working in mines, in agriculture. Um, the miners, uh, Euro-American miners in Rock Springs were very upset. They organized and they sought to physically expel Chinese from their myths. Uh So many Chinese were injured, many Chinese died. They were physically driven away. Inspired by this example, um, leading citizens, and we're talking about, you know, sort of established business people, people into elective office in the towns of Tacoma and Seattle, uh, saw what happened in Rock Springs and undertook to uh, organize their own expulsion campaigns. Uh, and so in 1885, 1886, most Chinese from the Pacific Northwest. Uh, we're actually physically driven out, uh, forced to leave, subject to violence. Uh, this is um, uh, an extension of, uh, and it, it helps you to see sort of the consequences when particular populations are viewed as being foreign. They are identified by race. They are not considered to have rights or uh, the capacity even to Uh, settle in the United States and make lives, even though many of them were very gainfully employed, they had businesses, they were actively participating in their different communities. Uh, They would have liked to have families. Uh, Many of them were legally uh, had very few um, options in terms of marrying and having, bringing up children in the United States. And so there is a long history of um, Asian persons, ethnic Asians, in the United States uh, being seen as uh, foreigners, that they never settle here in this country, they are racially marked um, and also um, disposable. Uh, So what happens in this most recent year, uh, and so the Atlantic killings attracted uh, significant national attention to what had already been a year of intensifying uh, hostility to Asian Americans and Asians in the United States, um, the way in which the um, coronavirus pandemic um, was spoken about, uh, the ongoing uh, difficult relationship uh, with China, which in is itself is also highly nationalistic and very, very chauvinistic, um, has really made conditions much more difficult for. Um, Asian Americans in this country, as you noted in your introductory comments, there this past year there has been a surge in anti-Asian uh, attacks um, incidents. Um, as uh, Zach we talked about in his poem, uh, many old people, uh, people just sort of going about their daily business, have just been randomly attacked uh, physically, verbally. Uh, it's been it's become very, very nerve-wracking just to try to be in the United States and just to have a regular life. Uh, these uh, flames have been fueled by um, a number of our political leaders uh, who use inflammatory language to blame uh, China for the what is actually a natural uh, a, uh, production of uh, this, uh, high, this very, very uh, uh, infectious and deadly uh, germ which it does not uh, operate on the basis of racial differentiation. Um, there's also been uh, the ongoing um, demonization of China, and by extension, many Chinese or Chinese looking persons. Uh, and so these attacks, um, I think in my view, these, the, uh, the killings in Atlanta actually speak to uh, older, uh, and uh, more latent forms of hostility and stereotyping, particularly of Asian women. I can talk about that, uh, but it's um, there is a deep history in the United States of anti-Asian discrimination. It runs in parallel to the ways in which um, Black Americans have been racialized, Native Americans, and then also Mexican Americans, uh, but is no less a a uh, long aspect of this nation's history.
1: So you talked about how uh, there were so many barriers, both both violence and, and illegal, to uh, Asian American settlement in the United States and Asian American citizenship. Um, but at the same time, we see a, a development of a, a very large Asian American community in the United States, despite those restrictions, many of whom are citizens because by birth, um, how how did those that that community begin to contribute to American democracy and and and, and fight for their own rights, uh, even amidst these nationalistic battles? Uh, I'm thinking of World War II and, 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 and Japanese internment camps that, that that actually saw greater oppression of Asian Americans.
0: So the Asian American population stays pretty small until 1965. 1965 is when the United States Finally, removes racial criteria from its uh, immigration laws, although the laws continue to have differential racial impacts. Uh, And so after 1965, we've seen a geometric increase in um, the Asian American population. Before that, um, the Asian American population, uh, there are uh, small numbers, there's a gender imbalance Uh, because of the immigration laws that last really into the 1970s. And so, but there, some were able to form families and um, the children from those families had birthright citizenship. This is a result of the 14th Amendment, which was an effort during Reconstruction to try to legally institutionalize the integration and inclusion of African-Americans. The language of that amendment states, though, that all persons um, and the Supreme Court ruling on the uh, uh, precedent setting uh, citizenship case of Wong Kim Ark determined that the language of that amendment, all persons, um, regardless of race or status of their parents who were born in the United States, in fact, had uh, citizenship. And this uh, was, has been the major toehold Uh, the major way for which um, uh, not just Chinese immigrants, all Asian immigrants, but all immigrants in general, um, and for those arriving without prior authorization, have been able to try to sink roots and establish themselves um, in the United States. So for example, uh, the uh, category aliens and eligible for citizenship, which was a legal term for uh, Asians, uh, in the United States, dating back to the 1790 Nationality Act, um, the, the, many Western states passed alien land laws to bar aliens ineligible from citizenship uh, to buy, to rent, to lease um, farmland. Uh, this particularly targeted Japanese Americans, who uh, some of whom, if they had kids born in the United States uh, who were U.S. citizens, were then try to place their property um, or to purchase property in the names of um, their U.S. born progeny. And so this is one way that they were actually, I mean, literally to try to sink roots in the United States. Um, however, you know, focusing on Japanese Americans, by the time we get to World War II, uh, we have one of the sort of worst civil rights um, uh, violations in U.S. history. So during World War II, Uh, the U.S. entry into that war was precipitated by Japan's attack on Pearl Harbor. And this sort of, the United States being attacked on its own territory uh, really galvanized the public and uh, then mobilized the American people to finally, um, so that FDR could finally uh, enter the United States into the war. There was tremendous hatred and uh, hostility towards Japanese people to the extent that immediately, the very next day, December 8th, uh, they already started rounding up Japanese American community leaders, placing them into incarceration camps. Uh, The Japanese American community were frozen in place. They were placed under curfew. Their assets were frozen. Uh, And then FDR issued executive order 9066, which ordered that all Japanese Americans uh, living within 100 miles of the West Coast should be rounded up and taken away because uh, it was that uh, coastal uh, region was uh, claimed to be a militarily sensitive zone. And so uh, this principle of military necessity is still on the books. It's still something that the United States uh, can call upon uh, to target certain populations And what happened to Japanese Americans in World War II is that 120,000 were uh, quickly, within months, removed from their homes and businesses, uh, places that they had worked for decades to establish and to claim in the United States and placed into these incarceration camps in the interior of the United States. Uh, Two thirds of these uh, incarcerated Japanese Americans were in fact, US citizens. There had been no evidence. There was no attempt to uh, actually distinguish between uh, somebody who might have been working on behalf of Japan uh, from people who simply had been here in the United States and making their lives. Uh, And so um, uh, the incarceration camps uh, would run until January 1945. Uh, This, uh, this rep there were challenges by the Japanese American um, community. Uh, Korematsu uh, was, or uh, Hirabayashi is another case uh, trying to challenge this. And this is when we have the principle of military necessity being affirmed by the Supreme Court. Um, those cases at the time, Hirabayashi and um, Korematsu were both upheld by the Supreme Court. These cases would be revisited in the 1980s, and for example, Korematsu's decision would be vacated because digging into what had happened uh, in 1941, 1942 revealed that, in fact, the U.S. military knew that there was no chance that the Japanese Navy would be able to, in fact, uh, attack the west coast of the United States, and that the rounding up of Um, this 120,000 Japanese Americans, in fact, served no military purpose, that it had been motivated largely out of racial prejudice uh, by people who wanted to remove Japanese Americans from their land so that uh, other people could claim it. Uh, It's, uh, you know, the Japanese American community is one of the most active when it comes to paying attention to uh, how people are targeted uh, by race and subject to various, uh, uh, attacks and undermining of the civil rights protections. And so this is a, you know, a powerful, uh, era in terms of Asian American history, but it's not just Asian American history. It's actually our national history.
2: Right. Right. Uh, that, that's such a powerful overview you've given us, uh, Madeline, uh, side by side with what you're discu- describing is also a, an emerging perspective, particularly in the second half of the twentieth century, of Asians as as you call them in one of your books, as a model minority. and and I, I certainly, having uh, grown up as the as the child of an Indian immigrant, Indian American Indi- immigrant from the Indian subcontinent uh, in New York City in the second half of the twentieth century. I witnessed what you describe uh, very well as the, the sort of racialization of Asians, of I- Indians as well as uh, Chinese and Japanese and Koreans and Vietnamese and many others. But also uh, in the public school I went to, the perception was that the Asians were always going to be the best students. Uh, how does that uh, stereotype emerge side by side with the racialized uh, negative stereotype you've described?
0: So one of the challenges in Asian American history is that um, the older immigration strains who experienced just the uh, the terrible conditions under Asian exclusion uh, is far outnumbered now by Asian immigrants who have arrived since 1965. For most of Asian American history, actually, uh, the bulk of the Asian-Americans, the majority of Asian-Americans have been foreign-born. Since 1965, the terms of the immigration law uh, have meant that most uh, disproportionately, I should say, um, Asians who immigrate to the United States who qualify to legally immigrate are extremely well-educated. College or um, uh They arrive to uh, attend graduate school in the United States. And thus, we in fact have statistical uh, data which shows that um, Asian Americans and uh, uh, Indian Americans particularly show these traits of having much higher percentages of uh, college degrees, of graduate education, of being employed in white collar and professional employment, also have. much, much higher um, household incomes than the national average. And so all of this has contributed to this image of model minority attainment, and also a uh, interpreted by many to indicate that the United States, in fact, does not have racial problems, problems of racial inequality, if this racial minority group uh, can be so successful. What that perception doesn't acknowledge is that many Asians arrive and struggle and actually experience uh, discrimination. They experience downward mobility, uh, that uh, there are also many groups that struggle more in particular among Asian American populations. And that term, which is a census category, actually uh, includes well over 40 different uh, nations and language groups. Uh, people coming from a divi- diverse array of backgrounds and histories and trajectories, um, there's many different kinds of experiences. Uh, and so, if you look, if you just aggregate Asian American trajectories and experience, you can see that there's actually a bimodal pattern of attainment. The most visible groups, the largest groups, such as um, Indians, Chinese, uh, Kore- um, Koreans, not as much, but somewhat. Uh, uh, Japanese, and then also, um, hmm, I'm missing one of the groups, uh, show higher levels of attainment uh, uh, that uh, sort of reflect the model minority achievement. This has been very visible in terms of uh, attendance on uh, the campuses of uh, highly competitive uh, uh, four-year institutions, universities, and colleges. Uh, But what we also see is that if you are able to disaggregate your data and pay attention to smaller groups, uh, for example, Pacific Islander groups, and then also um, populations arriving through refugee programs, that there are in fact higher than national average levels of poverty. Uh, There's also lower levels of educational attainment, for example, percentages not able to get um, high school degrees. And so it's actually a very, very complex situation. So this complicates uh, what we can say about Asian American attainment. And this has been sort of thrown into stark relief by the six women who were killed in Atlanta last week, because these women illustrate clearly, so they are working in um, massage businesses and the presumption has been that they are sex workers. It's actually not clear, but the fact that they're working in massage parlors is an indication. Uh, and you know, and they arrived in the United States like many other immigrants, hoping to have better lives for themselves, make better lives for their children. But the options that they have had in the United States have, in fact, been very limited and actually not that uh, productive of this kind of upward mobility that they had been hoping for. And so they end up working in these uh, massage businesses. um, And then when they are killed, uh, it's been, it doesn't register, it shows the, the cracks and the very significant fissures in this view of the model minority. It has also been, this has also, their deaths have also not been taken that seriously by Uh, The Atlanta police authorities, it took uh, a long time before the uh, victims were actually identified and their names given, and before we got the stories of who they were as human beings. Um, If you compare it to the recent Colorado tragedy, within one day, we've had the names, we've had the backstories of the people who were killed. But These women in Atlanta did not receive the same treatment, not here in the United States, um, also I will comment not by um, any not by the Chinese or the South Korean governments uh, which have very often when um, they're nationals or when uh, uh, people from uh, from that claim China or South Korea as backgrounds will uh, produce some sort of outcry or complaint um, on behalf of, um, of of their people who have, uh, migrated abroad, but this has not happened in the case of these women. So it's been uh, there has also been um, a lot of concerns and protests that the Atlanta police uh, and also the FBI refused to see the killing of six Asian women out of eight uh, persons now dead uh, who were uh, killed at Asian American owned businesses. Uh, there has been a refusal to recognize that these are uh, racial hate crimes. And this has been very upsetting to the community. It goes against sort of logic and reason, but it also, I think, reflects this lack of understanding of um, longer history, but then also the very recent history of the surge in anti-Asian attacks, uh, which have uh, increased, I think, 150% uh, over the past year.
2: So, so Madeline, it's a very important point and, and a, a, a perfect example of how the, the, the history you've laid out for us here is so relevant in understanding our current moment. We, we always like to close our show with a question that takes this history and looks forward. Um, a, a Asian Americans, uh, all of us uh, clearly inherit uh, a difficult history and a history that's filled Uh, with challenges that remain with us today that we often don't talk about. Uh, We do have opportunities, uh, as evidenced today by our ability to talk about these issues, uh, to change things going forward. And and Asian Americans uh, from all different parts of this large region, more than 40 countries, as you said, are a clear presence in the United States, if not a majority presence, and if still a a presence that confronts discrimination, uh, we're still a a powerful presence in the United States. Um, How do you see us using this history as we go forward to improve upon these conditions?
0: So for Asian Americans, and I want to here express gratitude for Um, the many um, non-Asian American leaders and scholars who have also spoken out in recognition and in support uh, for just the impact of uh, last week's killings, but also the overall conditions during the past year um, to recognize that um, even though we have uh, different paths, we face different kinds of challenges in a democracy that remains uh, racially uh, inegalitarian and exclusionary, um, that we nonetheless have significant uh, issues around which we can build coalition and also just simply to um, support each other, right? In our shared humanity, uh, in the fact that uh, we are all people and that uh, we should, render respect and kindness to each other. So I've been very appreciative um, that this has been uh, expressed and conveyed and affirmed, you know, throughout much of my career, but during the past week in particular. And I think this is a reflection of how we need, uh, we can be moving forward um, if these sorts of values and recognition of the humanity of our fellow persons is foregrounded, in our interactions and our dynamics and our perceptions. And to do this, however, um, I think it is important to understand the history and to sort of acknowledge and be willing to see that, you know, all of us certainly have our own blinders or lack of awareness or understanding, various kinds of ignorance. Uh, And so what happened in the case of the killings in Atlanta is that the killer himself, I think, did not even realize the ways in which he was acting on these old kinds of prejudices and perceptions about Asian women. There in fact is a long history of Asian women being viewed as um, prostitutes, as being sexually available, but as also being expendable. So for example, the, um, you know, the widely uh, beloved Puccini opera, Madame Butterfly has as its core climax, um, the death of uh, the uh, Asian woman who has fallen in love with this American Marine officer. They have had a child, but he's planning to go on with his real life with his American wife. And so she commits suicide so that their son can uh, go live with his father. Um, And the, the, uh, the music is beautiful, but it celebrates the death of this Asian woman. Uh, It's not clear that the death is necessary, but in terms of sort of the story, it's it's the storyline, it magnifies this this kind of uh, plot, which is reiterated in many, many other movies, many other productions. Uh, We see this in the uh, Broadway musical, uh, Miss Saigon, which is very long running. It's Uh, transplanted this storyline and this uh, representation of uh, Asian women as dying for love of American men um, uh, to the Vietnam War era. Uh, We have uh, just scores of representations of the Vietnam War period where Asian women as prostitutes, um, Asian uh, women dying as civilian casualties of the war are casually represented as backdrop to um, the American military presence. And this may be sort of movies produced for entertainment, but it reflects the reality of the extensive U.S. military presence in Asia. After World War II, the United States had military bases in South Korea, in Japan, in Taiwan, in the Philippines, uh, in Okinawa. Uh, It had rest and recreation places. In Thailand and Hong Kong, and in all of these places, extensive red light districts developed. This was a main point of interaction uh, between um, Americans, mostly men, um, and um, the Asian societies, chiefly through um, uh, Asian sex workers. And this is uh, this is a part of our nation's history. Uh, this is uh, one of the most significant ways in which Americans were interacting with Asians. Um, these patterns have clearly been transplanted back here to the United States in the actions of Robert Aaron Long, who bought a gun. He was He had problems in his life and he decided the way to solve them was to buy a gun, go to these Asian American businesses and kill all these Asian women. Um, To me, the connections are very clear. It's related to his, uh, just um, the kinds of racism and misogyny that are sort of lodged in his subconscious. Uh, He's not consciously aware of them. The Atlanta police accepted his interpretation of his motives, Uh, but this again, shows uh, this levels of just not paying attention and not understanding this history and not being able to recognize um, the kinds of hostilities that are latent in uh, U.S. society,
2: right? And and certainly recognizing those hostilities allows us to at least uh, confront them and try to deal with them, uh, and 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 hopefully move beyond them. Uh, Zachary, as as a young person of Asian American descent yourself, um, and someone who's who has an incredibly diverse uh, friend group filled with many people from Asian American backgrounds. Um, how do you think about these issues? Do you feel this history is elucidated sufficiently and do you see positive steps forward? Where, how do you uh, think about these issues?
1: I don't think that um, this history is talked about nearly enough. Uh, myself, even as an, as an Asian American, haven't really interacted with this history uh, much at all I think that we, we we tell asian American history uh in in in, in very in, in very small spurts and, and almost always we sort of end with as if they are um, as if asian Americans are this model minority uh and, and as if we have attained uh, full assimilation or, or or full acceptance in American society. So I think we need to tell this history, but we also need to we need to we need to spread awareness about the the, the stereotypes and uh and tropes that that play into this hate uh, today and and have done so in our past.
2: I think that that's very sensible and, and important, uh, Madeline. I want to close with one final question for you. Um, Many uh, Asian Americans, uh, particularly in the the Indian American community that I know uh, a bit about, uh, they, and I think this is true for other Asian American communities, they often don't like to talk about these issues, uh, in part because it's it's obviously not pleasant, but also because they like to see themselves as successful and transcending these issues. And, and this became clear, uh, in a controversy uh, recently at many universities and even uh, certain high schools, like my, my uh, high school in New York City, Stuyvesant High School, where uh, Asian Americans uh, were uh, upset about certain elements of affirmative action because they didn't want, they, they thought it worked against their access to institutions. And I think in many cases, they like to see themselves as, as not needing uh, any kind of any kind of help. Uh, how do how do you address that within the Asian American community? How do you talk about this history within the community?
0: So I well, of course, I'm an educator and I'm a teacher, um, and I look at access to higher education as an investment in um, the people of. Um, United States, you know, and so I mean, but here I'm talking about higher education, but also really the K through 12 education that uh, actually the United States um, needs to be doing a much better job in terms of sort of promoting and cultivating um, the people who live here. This is in the interest of the country. It's not just in the interest of the people themselves that this is, you know, the greatest resource of the United States is its people, all its people. Uh, Higher education in particular um, is a way of ensuring, uh, of helping uh, people who are motivated, who have uh, uh, talents and goals to actually be able to accomplish even more. And so from my perspective, when we um, are considering what students to admit, and unfortunately, we don't have enough higher education facilities to Uh, actually uh, provide this level of training and education for all those who are seeking it. Um, But when we admit students, uh, we need to acknowledge that one, at the K-12 level, it's an uneven playing field. That in fact, there are uh, many applicants who have uh, talents and capacities uh, that have not received the same kinds of um, preparation in the application process. Um, there, it is another reality of our landscape that um, these kinds of cultural capital translate from generation to generation that is if you come from an already affluent and already well-educated background uh, you will come to that process with advantages uh, and so to me higher education should also serve as a way of trying to level that playing field of providing opportunity uh, to Um, students, to persons, to individuals who um, uh, have the talent and the potential uh, and uh, to allow them then to realize that potential. Now, I say this, um, and Jeremy will know this, it can be challenging, in fact, trying to uh, figure out what the trajectory of any given applicant is Um, I think race is a factor, but I don't think race is the sole determining factor that we should, in fact, look at a broader array of um, factors and criteria, um, holistic admissions processes. And uh, University of Texas has this component in its admissions um, uh, system. Uh, What this means is that um, regardless of race, um, Applicants who are coming from sort of already um, uh, affluent family backgrounds um, have a lot of privileges and that this, uh, ideally, uh, those households, those families, those applicants will recognize this um, and that, uh, but by the same token, there are many students who will be applying from, who will be uh for example, first-generation college students. And again, this is a attribute that cuts across racial groups. Um, And so uh, the affirmative action debates and struggles have been racialized um, uh, to, you know, by many different persons, but I think it can actually be viewed with much greater complexity um, in ways that, um, you know, attention to uh, what we can accomplish through higher education and trying to provide um, that kind of access. Um, There was a study by uh, Bach and Bowen, The Shape of the River. Um, uh, These are two former presidents of Ivy League colleges. It was a longitudinal study of uh, tracking um, affirmative, uh, so students who were admitted into elite institutions through affirmative action and it attract them in terms of their actual performance and attainment, but then also very importantly track what they, these uh, students did with their education, sort of their access to this uh, uh, training um, in their careers and their professional lives. And one, the study found that uh, their attainment, their their performance actually was commensurate with everybody else. That the fact that they were admitted through affirmative action, uh, in fact. Uh, was not uh, sort of a um, uh, trying to advance the the uh, interests of someone who was not capable of the work. The um, other finding was that um, students who were admitted by affirmative action tend to have a stronger sense of obligation and responsibility to try to go back and help their communities to try to uh, use the benefits of their education. Help other people. And so, from that perspective, there in fact is a much larger payout in terms of admitting people who are, for example, first generation college students from underrepresented communities and backgrounds um, and giving them the benefits of higher education. That they help to lift um, the level of many, many more people uh, beyond their own self interests because they recognize. that it's important to do so. That if they have benefited from something like affirmative action, it's important to share those benefits uh, beyond themselves.
2: Uh, Madeline, you've, you've given us such a thoughtful, well-informed, and detailed overview of so many of these issues. And I think what's so powerful in your scholarship and what you've shared with us today is, is the recognition that um, knowledge of this history uh, knowledge of the racializations and the uh, ways in which violence and power have been used against certain groups, it, it can help us to to understand the pathologies of our moment, uh, and also to see through a discussion of affirmative action, for example, uh, mechanisms for at least uh, acknowledging that history and trying to build uh, positive uh, responses to it, uh, providing access to higher education for parts of the Asian American community that have been disprivileged, uh, while also recognizing that other parts of the community um, might not in the short run benefit from affirmative action, but as you say, will in the long run benefit from it. And, and that could be a metaphor for, I think, how we examine so many issues uh, in our society and how we think about policing, how we think about uh, the allocation of resources, how we think about uh, government programs and, and the communities we live in. Uh, your your passion and your knowledge are are so insightful and and I really want to thank you for sharing your your time with us today, Madeline.
0: Well, thank you, Jeremy, and thank you for having this conversation.
2: Uh, and and I want to thank uh, Zachary as always for his inspiring poem. And our largest thanks go to our listeners. Uh, thank you for joining us for this week of uh, this is democracy.